0: And welcome back to Critical Thinking, a critical role rewatch narrative discussion podcast. Um, I am John, the executive producer here at Final Show Films, at John A. Bates on Twitter, and with me today is Jack. Hey,
1: everybody, this is Jack. I'm at AltF4Gamers on Twitter.
0: And Jeremy. Hello,
2: I'm Jeremy. I'm Jay Thomas, 411Mania on Twitter.
0: And today we're talking about episode uh, 17. 17 of Critical Role, uh, Hubris, starring Ryan Acaba as Tiberius, Laura Bailey as Vixalia, Talzin Jaffe as Percy, Liam O'Brien as Vaxil, Don Mercer as Keymouth, Sam Regal as Scanlan, Travis Willingham as Grog, and Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. Now, this is the last episode we have uh, Ashley in for a Oh, no, we don't... This is the first one we don't have Ashley in, actually. Correct. Correct. Mm-hmm. Last yeah. one was the last one we had Ashley in. We don't have her back for a while, I don't think.
1: Nah, yeah, it's quite a... It's quite a... Quite a way.
0: <clears throat> This first gap, I don't think she even skypes in for a while. Uh, but yeah. So, uh, as a bit of backstory, before we dive into it, at this point, Ashley Johnson is has be, is uh, her uh, schedule has been filled with filming Blind Spot season one, I think. Yes. Um, the first season, yep. of blind spot, uh, and so she'll be gone for the next ten months uh, uh, in New York filming. Filming that, she will occasionally come back to do uh, to do Skype in uh, game uh, with with the group, but mostly she is uh, relegated to an sort of an NPC position <clears throat> at this point. And I want to go ahead and get into that before we start the previously on. Uh, how to write characters off of a show um, so <laughs> because it 's something that 's not always well handled in, mm-hmm. in, in writing um, so in in this case and we'll get we 'll get to the to the full description later, but in this case, basically, at the end of the last game, they determined that there was a temple to Serenry that Pike was going to need to help restore and help construct. Uh, and that was set up at the end of the last game. And so at the beginning of this game with her not being here, it's very simple where Pike says, okay, guys, I can feel my, you know, Sarah and Ray calling to me saying that I need to help them restore this temple in her, in her name. <clears throat> I'm going to have, I have to stay here and do that. And, and that's very cleanly how they sort of get her off screen without getting rid of her. Uh, I know a lot of times when you write characters off, they either die, making sure they can never come back, or they just sort of disappear. Um, well, what I, I know there are examples of both, of, of bad and good examples of writing people off, but it's not coming to mind right now. I'm positive okay, that Jeremy and Jack can think of something. Best
1: so. show, in my opinion, for writing characters off, in ways that made sense and also furthered the plot, Battle on Five.
3: James
1: (coughs) Michael Straczynski, when he was drafting that show, uh, anecdotally, I can't remember where it's from, but supposedly, he literally, for every single main protagonist type or even secondary character on that show. He had already developed at least one, if not more trapdoors in a sense for the plot where if something happened, because he wanted to make a show that's going to run for a long time, that's going to tell this huge arcing story (laughs) over this uh, multiple season uh, production. And with that, you kind of have to prepare for that sort of thing. And apparently he went overboard preparing for ways that the story would survive the absence of the of occasional characters and if mm-hmm. you sit down and you watch the entire show it happens a lot the main protagonist for the first season if not couple seasons I can't remember how how long he lasted but uh, drops out and is no longer there comes back and is described what actually happens to him later on you know and a lot of these times that the character dropped out it was because something happened with the actor in in question and they were no longer able to uh, to carry on the the role um, but just masterfully done and the the narrative doesn't suffer from it because everything happens for a reason and yep. those reasons were already laid out just in case and for many of the the characters they lasted the entire the, the entire series so you never saw their trapdoors but they were apparently in place for each of these characters and if you can prepare something like that that's fantastic and it saves you a lot of trouble from the sort of oh shit we have to randomly kill this person or well they left and we'll hand wave something but you know eh. Jeremy what do you you think?
0: Well so really quick because I just remembered it and I don't want to forget it again as Jack started talking I remembered the ones that I wanted to point out um (laughs) uh, and the way my brain works, I don't want to forget it. So, uh, three examples of writing a character off uh, occurred in the series *Mash*, uh, which is one of my, which is one of my all-time favorite TV series. I've mentioned that a couple of times before. Um, three characters in question. Uh, spoilers for *Mash* uh, if you haven't seen. The, spoilers for a f- a forty-year-old series. Yeah, like- <laughs> a forty-year-old. <laughs> Finished sitcom. Um, if you haven't seen it, uh, but Since
1: we know there's a ton of you listeners out there that have just heard of it within the well, last six months and are desperately trying to catch up.
0: It's true. I mean, there are people. There are people that may have never seen it. So, anyways, um, uh, Colonel Henry Blake, Trapper John McIntyre, mm-hmm. and Major Frank Burns. Uh, these three characters are written off for different reasons in the show right uh Colonel Henry Blake is written off because his actor received a with 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 plenty of time ahead uh his actor was a sort of had sort of figured out that he'd probably come to an end with this character and wasn't going to be able to take it very much further also he had been receiving better offers. Uh, that the the at the time the production company that that was doing Mash simply couldn't beat. Uh, so in order to write him off in such a way that he can't, that not only could he not come back because they knew he wasn't going to, because he was he had his mm. better offers coming out, um, he was going to do other things, uh, but also to make, because they knew he was leaving and and they had time to sort of make it memorable. The very last episode of the last season that he did ended the season um, and had him his character being discharged from the service, from the military uh, and he was going to go home and what they did was they used his leaving to tell a very particular story that you only get one chance to tell in a, in a long form narrative uh, mm-hmm. which is specifically the, the actual literal price of war and conflict Uh, Henry Blake has this beautiful, emotional, fun, funny, sad uh, um, send-off where he gets drunk and they party and they get him a new suit that he wears when he's leaving. And he has a big tearful goodbye with salutes and kisses and hugs all around. Um, And he gets on his plane and he leaves or he gets on a Jeep that takes him off and then the scene shifts to an operating room scene which is typically typically an operating room scene is a little bit more lighthearted uh with more of a comedy with, scene. Well, they they're not they're they're not they're specifically not comedy scenes uh because the the mash writers the mash writers actually uh put in their contract with the production studio that they would never put a laugh track in in the operating room. Right. So, because they don't want the operating but there, room, but the to but the OR
1: scenes tend to kind of bantery. Yes, no, there,
0: there's, that's there's, what there's, I mean. Yeah, yeah. There's they're they're more bantery. They 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 show off the gallows humor, but they they pointedly never put a laugh track in the comedy in in the in the OR scenes because they didn't want to. They wanted to have the gallows humor stand out as just that gallows humor, not right. oh, you're supposed to laugh here, um. And so so it's tend it to be a little bit lighthearted depending on the episode. Um, and uh, they come in uh, – Radar c- comes in and the the characters are joking and say, hey, you, you know, if it's my discharge, you can give it to You can go ahead and give it to me. I can take it. And uh, Radar just very dramatically and like, like he's trying to not cry uh, reads out Colonel Henry Blake's uh, plane was shot down over the Sea of Japan. Uh, there were no survivors.
2: To be clear, not trying to act like he was, because this is an episode I could talk an entire podcast about. Yeah, go ahead. But, oh, yeah,
3: good God, yes.
2: <laughs> um, because it, it really is one Madison of the... one of Henry, yeah. Even as somebody who I, 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 I really like, Nash, and I appreciate it. it's not one of my absolute favorite shows, but this is one of the single greatest hour, or, oh, yeah. episodes of television. Yes. But for that episode... That moment, the cast did not know. They kept that completely secret from the entirety of the cast because they wanted the reaction to be genuine and and a complete shock to them.
0: I knew um, that about the rest. I did, I knew that about the rest of the cast. I didn't know that about Radar.
2: Yes, as far as I'm aware, at least Radar did not know it, other than what was he on was the was handed the script. Yeah. Yes.
0: Um, Yeah. know that. And I think Alan Aldo
1: was like the only actor that actually yes was happening. Right. But they handed um, out that last page of the script to the cast. The immediately um, prior to filming. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, the, he, he trying not to cry. He, he gives this information and the room is silent except for a gasp here and the sound of metal instruments clicking and they end it there. um, with that you know using the 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 using the leaving of this character to very much tell the story that while this is a comedy wars do not have happy endings yep and that even somebody who was not a combatant who was just a doctor who was going home is not guaranteed the safety of an ending um and that was a very very powerful way to end a season because that that was the end of the season. That wasn't just the end of an episode. Yeah, that means- there wasn't. <laughs> I was well. See you six months later. That was you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then moving. Fucking to the- Negan ain't got shit on them. <laughs> <laughs> the, the 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 very next episode, the start of the next season, we have another character who is written out. Uh, this one was far more abruptly because in the span of time between that season and the next one, uh, the actor playing uh, Trapper John McIntyre had gotten basically into a contract issue with the production company. He had been he had been having an issue with the production company for a while over the past season, but it was sort of, this was sort of where it came to a head. Um, I can't think of his name. He 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 passed away recently, uh, a couple of years ago. Actually, now that I think about it, but um, um the Wayne actor, actor Wayne Wayne Rogers. Yes, that's it. Yeah. Um, Wayne Rogers had been having a fight because uh, the original pitch of MASH was a ensemble comedy show, and over the course of the seasons, it had become more and more focused around Hawkeye, Alan Alda's character, yep. and and creatively, he was at a sort of an impasse where he couldn't justify remaining on the show because it wasn't what he had signed up for anymore. But because this sort of contract issue happened, and, and basically they didn't renew his contract, and so he didn't come back. But because that happened in the, in the break between seasons, they didn't have any way to quickly set up what was happening. So they opened the show with him just being gone. And they explained it throughout. The, they made the episode about explaining the fact that he was gone and then introducing his replacement. Um but that was that was one of the ways where you you're sort of scrambling to explain why somebody is very suddenly gone um, and n- not their best character departure show because of it, episode because of it, primarily because the audience, just like the characters in the show, felt sort of very abruptly abandoned by the character, um, which has its merits and certainly has a has a has a point to, as a point to be made there, but is probably not the, it's, it's definitely not the departure you want. Right. For a for a beloved character. No. Um, then a couple seasons later, Larry Linville, uh, who played major Frank Burns decided, and now so this one was another one where they had plenty of time.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Larry Linville had gone as far with his character as he could possibly go. Without devolving into even more of a caricature than Frank Burns already was, Uh, Frank (laughs) Frank Burns, as as much as he was a caricature, there were still aspects of him that made him a character. Right. He still had his human moments where he was relatable, and at certain points, um, and where he was more sympathetic than he than he could have been. And you know, after (laughs) after I think five seasons of, of being this character, Larry Lindell just saw no other place to go. He said, all right, well, I would like to be written out and, and here's how I would like to go. And once again, they used with the, with the foreknowledge of this character, of this actor departing, they used it to tell another story. This time, uh, Frank Burns basically has a psychotic break. Um, and he spends two episodes hounding people in Seoul and in Tokyo, uh, because the 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 woman that he had been cheating on his wife with got married. And so he was hounding other people that he thought was them. And and eventually over the course of these quite frankly hilarious uh bits of dialogue between the actors on stage as they're recounting what's going on after hearing it from the phone. So it is one of those it's one of those classic comedy bits where one actor is on the phone and reacting like you're only hearing half the conversation then hangs it up tells the other half and the audience and the other characters on screen get to react in time in time greater. Right. um very very well written stuff but at the end of this whole bit uh where you know we were starting seeing so sort of seeing uh 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 Frank who ostensibly has been the villain character of the show for the most part he's been the guy who's been directly mm-hmm. at odds with the heroes and and you know the the sort of the butt of a lot of the jokes um gets uh he 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 gets detained uh for psychological quest for psychological testing and and is sort of you know taken and and is being prepared to be sent home when he calls the gang calls the camp to talk to hawkeye and and for one last time um and over the course of the phone call we again get this bit where hawkeye's having half a conversation and hawkeye's getting sort of increasingly agitated as he's talking to him um and when he hangs up the phone we learn that uh that frank burns has been cleared of all charges uh, has been reassigned to a veteran's hospital in, in, in his hometown and has been promoted to lieutenant Colonel. So the bad guy, effectively, has been rewarded for his poor choices and his bad behavior. Uh, and that, so a very different lesson that we are that that is being presented here from when uh, from when um, uh, Henry Blake left,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and but with within it is couched another lesson of you know not all not all injuries and this is something that they've they've talked about throughout the entire series. In fact, it was what they ended the series on is that not all wounds are visible right uh but the bigger lesson here was you know sometimes the bad guys win yep. um and so these are these are these are three very distinct ways of letting somebody go and tell me right that i wanted to that i wanted to extrapolate and then i will let jeremy get to his undoubtedly long list of innings that he would like to talk about so i, uh, I could
3: go too, too long. um uh, i have uh, uh for this, right? It's very easy to get a genre show where it's a life and death situation. To you, you have for a show like, say, Supernatural or a show like, um, a game of drums, it is super easy to write somebody out if you have to. Um,
0: ready? Okay, um, yeah, you, you are you are roboting. Uh, not as not 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 too terribly not super bad, but okay. enough that it's it sounds like you're talking through like a vocoder. <laughs> okay. Um. I'm in.
3: Okay. I, um. But it's very simple. Like in the phones or, or something like that. Due to drive people out because these are the These where you can expect people to die on regular. Um. And there are times that are very well, and there are times that done very, very, very poorly. Uh, um, I think. Uh, um, is an example where I can't think of a ex- uh, time where it was done badly now to be fair. They have to. You completely cut out there, yeah.
0: and I don't know if you're even still there. Nope, the answer is no. Hey, are you back? Maybe, maybe not. I we'll think that is a no. We, we cannot hear you, Jeremy. We see you typing. All right, I'm going to go ahead and do a thing. Hello? Hey, now we can hear you. There we go. All right, and you sound better.
2: Okay. Uh, yeah, Jack- no, it was stuck on connect it, 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 all of a sudden Discord had the uh uh disconnected connecting shit going on. Yeah.
0: Jack, you're also a little roboty. Can you talk okay. for a
2: second?
1: Yeah, I can talk for a second. Uh, oh,
0: you're 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 much better. Apparently okay. Discord sorted its shit out. All right. Okay. Yay. Um so the last thing we heard was they have George. Yes. I believe oh, you were saying okay. George R. R. Martin. George <laughs> R. Martins. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So they so have George Mark- Martin. Let me cut back in, and yeah.
2: then we'll let you go back from there. So they have George R. R. Martin's script to go off of, uh, to, to, to tell them when people need to die or not. Um, but it's very much, as long as they fit within the, the sort of pernicious theme of of the setting, it's not hard for them to, to sort of write characters out if they need to for whatever reason. Um, a very poor example, I think, at least over the last few seasons, has been *Walking Dead*. Um, and I'm not the most obvious example of that is uh, uh, when uh, Negan's killing of the the uh, his first killings of the main group. I will try to leave this this fairly spoiler free, even though it was. The beginning this, of last this season.
0: A, this is a spoiler podcast. Just say spoilers.
2: Okay, so when they kill Glenn and Abraham, <laughs> what?
0: Glenn's dead. God damn it!
2: Um, <laughs> but and it wasn't the death of the characters because this is something that needed to happen within the storyline. It's how the producers handled it in terms of killing the character, the the first character off, who was Abraham at the end of the hour, in the season 6 finale without revealing who it was and then making people oh, like that whole higher entire...
1: we we've killed someone
2: yes when everybody Not telling! Knew, everybody <laughs> knew that they were building towards this moment the entire season the second the word the name negan came in everybody knew that it was building to this um And who were they going to kill? And, and, and how was it going to happen? And then they pull this stupid goddamn bait and switch that there is a very good reason that this last season suffered the first official hit in the ratings for the show. Uh, they pissed off a very sizable portion of their audience by doing that. Um, and a bunch of people tuned in for the premiere and then didn't continue watching after that point because you want to see how the story that you've, seen, you've watched so far ends but you don't need to see it too much after that um, and then I think there, a show that did this both well and bad was going back to our, our, our favorite standby of Joss Whedon uh, Angel mm-hmm. Angel, some of the ways that, 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 that Whedon wrote people off was amazing um, the way that that Glenn Glenn Quinn, I was thinking Walking Dead. Quinn is writ, uh, uh, killed off in the first season. was 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 fantastic and typical Whedon tragic moment. Something that you didn't expect happening because he was a main character, but it was also very natural. It 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 made sense. Um, uh, the Wait, same. Th- who are you talking about? Quinn. That may not be his name. That may be the actor's name. Doyle. Doyle.
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. Glenn Quinn. Quinn was the actor's right, name. Yes. Quinn Sorry. was the actor. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay. Um, Sorry. I was Doyle. like, <laughs> God dang it. <laughs> it's all good. Um. Yes. Doyle. The way that they uh-huh. kill off Doyle and in, the, in the, it was it was very natural. It made logical sense, but, and it was a a, a what the fuck moment. Um, Yeah,
1: because you expected him to be sticking around for a while. Yeah, exactly. And then all of a sudden it was like, boom.
2: Yep. And then uh, another good example was Winifred. Absolutely terrible moment. And a nice rare example of killing off a character, yet keeping the actor around. Right. Um, And one of those just heartbreaking moments that, again, fit very well within the narrative. Then but there was that's what the happens
1: when Cthulhu's niece sets up exactly in your cranium, you know, yeah, so
2: then there was the departure of characters like um uh well Cordelia was was then mm-hmm. that whole story arc was was poorly planned, and I don't know, I've never been sure whether that arc was planned because she was leaving. Or she left as a result of the storyline, whichever the case it was, it was. It was not handled well. Up to and including when she came back for one more episode. Uh, for, like, the 100th episode. Um, yeah. Also, a lot of minor characters, like Justine in season four, was cur- mm-hmm. sort of dumped and killed off very, very sort of side, like, afterthoughtish. ish um, So there's a lot of good and bad in that one. I think the key is if you can you have to make it fit within the narrative and and the setting of the world. Things happen, tragedies happen, people die unfortunately in real life or or contract disputes happen um or you just reach a certain point in storyline where this character no longer makes sense. Whatever the case may be, as long as it is fitting within the story and makes logical sense to 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 write them out the way that they're written out and they are given a send-off that is appropriate to how important they were to the storyline, it's going to work. And I think that's a good example, uh, bringing it back to the show that we're actually talking about. Um, It's a good example (laughs) of uh, um, with Pike's departure, it makes sense Um, even though, you know, it's not storyline, uh, 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 guided, it's, it's behind the scenes guided, but it's makes sense. It's done well. And she gets an appropriate send off.
0: Yeah. And there's a, there's a justification for it within the story. And yes, that justification does not preclude her for coming, from coming back. Right. Uh, that, that that's sort of the two important parts there when you're, when you're when you're when you're doing like a fantasy story like this and you have a character that you want to leave you don't want them to leave forever you want to make sure that you don't do it in such a way that they can never come back for instance, mm-hmm. you don't want to do what R.A. Salvatore has done and as much as, <laughs> as, much as, I, as, much as I
1: personally well, love Welcome back to Critical Thinking where we shit on R.A. Salvatore. Well,
0: now, as much as I personally love R.A. Salvatore's writing, if you have your humans die, they're dead. Don't bring them fucking back in reincarnated and fucking... And- especially Bruner. So yes. while well, Wolfgar and Cadibri, okay, there's fan service there, and there's whatever. Bruner died the way Bruner should have died. Uh-huh. Uh, spoilers for uh, Gauntlegrim, uh is is the book that 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 this happens in. But um, Bruner is old. At the beginning of Ari Salvatore's book series, Bruner is already several hundred years old. Uh huh. Um and. <laughs> And by the time he picks up Cadibri, Driss, and Wolfgar, he is in the latter stages of of a dwarf's lifespan, which is still longer than a human's lifespan, but he's getting up there. So in, uh, hundreds of years later, Cadibri and Wolfgar have died of old age or other reasons. I don't remember why Wolfgar died. I know Cadibri dies of old age. Which time? Um, the first time. Oh, sorry, The first, not the second time for Wolfgar, the first time for Caddy Bree. Oh, okay. I was going to say. Wolfgar died and came back previously, but that was different anyway. Wolfgar's that was
2: other amounts I mean, of stupidity.
0: Wolfgar has died and come back more often than a player character in a D&D game. So, um, anyways, uh, Caddy Bree and Wolfgar have died of old age at the very least. Yep. To the point where they can't just be rando resurrected. And Regis yeah. too and Regis as well. And so it's just Drist, Drist cuz Drist I was a, Regis. I hate Regis so much. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> because because Drist was a young elf, he's going to live another thousand or so years past where they're at now. Um, and Bruner has reached the end of the line. But Bruner doesn't want to die on a deathbed. He doesn't want to die going out sickly and old. He wants to die on one last adventure. Not, not 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 that he says this as much, but his actions indicate it and Drist sort of can tell. So he's coming, he comes to Drist with this grandiose adventure of saying, hey, there's this, there's this ancient dwarven ruin under Luskin called Gauntlegrim. and we're going to go find it. Um, and, and so he drags Drist for one last adventure to this dungeon. They go in there, they find it, they fight through all sorts of beasties, they find treasure, and Bruner dies in battle in Gauntlegrim fighting a horde of underdark creatures, pit basically and letting, lynch letting and all sorts like, of like, like letting, letting, I don't know if there's a pit in the lynch, but it was a lot of drow um, letting and, and undead and, and things like that. And letting, letting Drist get away with whatever it was that they came from so that he can die a dwarven death. And that was the perfect way to end Bruner's story. That's the only way to end Bruner's yep. story. You do not then three books are, Five books or however many books later, fucking bring him back! Oh, oh no! As we have to talk about Round how Shield. they brought back.
2: <laughs> we have to talk about how they brought back, because that's the worst part of it. Is if you if, 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 in fantasy and genre settings, there's always the possibility of bringing people back because the rules work in a different way than than our world. Yes. Um, and. I was the. I would even have been okay. So I was completely out of 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 the the driss books at this point. To be fair, I have not read these books, so my my I can't judge the quality of the writing. I can only judge the quality of the storytelling because I know what happens plotwise. To bring all four characters back by having. Literally a Dusek Machina mm-hmm. of having the god Miliki tell them Drist is going to need you in his darkest hour so you can be reborn in new bodies knowing everything you've always known.
1: With all of your memories intact.
2: With all of your memories intact. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Didn't they even get to choose what they came back as or something like Probably. that? Probably. I have no I uh, I I I don't I don't know that particular but like it was the most it was the clearest bullshit. I am not comfortable writing new characters and these characters sold, so I'm going to bring them back. The most bullshitty excuse for
0: that I think I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. You you, you, you Sorry. do not you do not sunset a character and then Oh, well, they're back. You don't do that. No. That, 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 that is disrespectful to the character and to the story that they have gone through.
2: And that's what, consi- that's what sinks so many good stories, too. Uh, you see this so commonly, I mean, talk about, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a, a truism in the comic book industry that nothing stays dead, with the exception of Uncle Ben. Um, because they cannot leave, they cannot allow characters to stay dead. And after characters have had appropriate goodbye, this character is done. There's always some new writer that's brought in who's like, you know, I really want to write this character, and the company's like, cool, we could use a sales bump. Go ahead and shit all over this character's legacy. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, no, the and and honestly, it's not you know having having another writer or somebody else go in over it's it's not so much that in my opinion anyway the 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 habitual resurrection of characters doesn't innately by its own by existing shape no. a character's legacy no. what it does is that it suddenly makes the stakes of any given situation yep so much less compelling. All of a sudden the concept of risk at least from a reader's perspective is more or less completely suspended because you don't yep. care if your favorite character is in danger because even if they go out on a limb and kill them they can always come back. You know, and it's it's like that whole I mean you can there's there's stuff that people have written about especially the death of Superman. Um, mm-hmm. arc, you know, which is one of the classic offenders of this issue. It's not so much that the problem was they killed Superman, but they they literally made death pointless. Yeah. And, and once you make death pointless, you're kind of yanking the rug out of any sort of uh, connection or resonance that your your audience is going to feel with the the themes of the fiction that you're creating Mm -hmm. because honestly if you break it down to a base fundamental level the point of telling stories is to give listeners and readers and viewers something to relate to something to resonate with something that's going to emotionally affect them and make them think and make them feel and if you're taking the basic aspects of human experience out of it there is no reason for them to connect there is no reason for them to think and there's no reason for them to feel anymore
0: with a few exceptions with
1: with a very few exceptions
0: with exceptions um, yes one of, of and one of the things one of the best that things... we're
1: going to have this uh, podcast on this episode and probably not talk about the episode at all <laughs> well,
2: we'll,
0: we'll, we'll get there we'll get there <laughs> but the,
2: i mean this this is one of those things that i could talk about again this i could is, talk about for freaking you know, hours
0: that's that's why that's why it's a rewatch narrative discussion podcast, not a rewatch just retell you what happened podcast.
1: So true. Anyway, um, with a few exceptions go so jump.
0: one of which being, uh, and this is one of the things you know you're doing something wrong when you take a trope of comedy characters and assign it to your serious dramatic persona. <laughs> And the thing uh-huh. of,
1: every character I play. What are you talking about?
0: Because death, not <laughs> death, not having consequences is a staple of comedy characters. Yes. Front and center, Deadpool. Um, who? I
1: was going to say Bugs Bunny, but okay, go.
0: B- Bugs Bunny also works, but like, yeah. like Deadpool. Deadpool is more on the nose about it than Bugs Bunny is, mm-hmm. um, because Deadpool is literally married to the goddess of death, immune to death in addition to being able to regenerate how many... Oh, did they get divorced? They got divorced quite a long time ago. Okay, well, Um, he had been married and had been given the boon of eternal life because death wouldn't kill him and a wide variety of things. And basically, he is unkillable. No matter how many times you kill kill him off, he will always come back because he's a comedy character. For him, the stakes aren't dying. For him, the stakes are not being funny. Uh, Well, and
2: I think with a character like that, because Deadpool, to be fair, Deadpool has his dramatic moments in the comic books, but it's not a life and death situation for him. Like his, and particularly recently, he's been a particularly tragic character. Sure, the the, the funny comes regularly, Um, but because of characters that he is surrounded, he's become surrounded with who eventually do die. He has yeah. become the Drist character in, in a sort of funny way. Um, in that, you know, Drist always talks about, well, everybody's going to be, you know, everybody's going to uh, die and I'm going to be alone forever. That's where the writers they were, find find the opportunity to
0: make him serious. Because I refuse to make friends with elves. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's the entirety... The entirety of Drist's emotional problems could be solved if he just made a fucking few elf friends. Oh, but he's
2: a drow, so of course he could never make for... Never mind the fact that he's like the chosen of fucking Maliki.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um... <laughs> anyways, getting out, Chris, but yeah, uh, it's like with, with comedy characters the with comedy characters, the threat is elsewhere, it's not yeah, or, it's not yeah. death mm-hmm. anyways, now we can actually talk about critical role episode seventeen hubris I, I could <laughs>
2: still go on that topic starring, another good
0: starring, starring college or <laughs> so you
2: know what's funny is that I introduced that topic at the end of the last episode. <laughs> Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then two weeks
2: went by. And, and we're, talk about we're it. talking about it more, which is awesome.
0: Yep. It, well, it, became, it sort of became more relevant here because this is the actual episode where she's gone. Yeah. Yeah, um, well, that was the episode where she's like, yep. Anyway. Yes. Uh, so previously on Critical Role. <laughs> <laughs> The party completed the venture of taking the Horn of Orcas to a place of safety and sealing it away, hopefully for eternity with the help of Lady Kima and two of the scale bearers. After heading to the basement of the platinum sanctuary in the city of scene in the ZMS, doing so. <sighs> there were no commas in that sentence. <sighs> <laughs> Vaseline, which is a city to the far northwest of the continent they're used to, uh, is, the city is a very devout religion-based city and currently considered the oldest bastion of civilization in the known civilized, in the known civilized world. Matt, we need to talk about your, reiter- your reiterances of the same word.
2: <laughs>
0: Proper. This city is a very devout religion, religion-based city and currently considered the oldest bastion of civilization in the known civilized world. Proper. City, city, civilized, civilized. After taking the skyship across the ocean to get there, sealing the horn, they also discover upon doing so (laughs) that the long-forgotten ruins of what appears to be an ancient temple of Sarenrae were recently discovered, and while Sarenrae does not have a strong following in the city, the few that are are trying to raise it and ask Pikes for help. Uh, So she stays behind. The party then steps away from the ruins of the tower. Sad, but understanding these circumstances. Also, circumstance is another one that he says a lot. Yeah. He says circumstance way more than he needs to say circumstance. <laughs> proper. Sigle. Sigle. <laughs> you guys are just going to say proper and sigle every time I say yep. something about words that he says?
1: Yep. Yep.
0: Well, I mean.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's, I believe, there's a critical role drinking game for a reason, John.
0: I believe he says circumstance more than he says proper, by the way. Well, uh,
1: as a, as, as a storyteller in DM myself, there are certain words that you do find yourself using a lot. Yes, and no, it's true. Things like circumstance, situation, mm-hmm. uh, issue, things like that. Those get used a lot in my vocabulary. I Maybe mean, for
2: me, DM. for me, unfortunately, it's sort of.
1: But <laughs>
0: <laughs> I use okay. I use I use thing a lot. I use thing, yeah. <laughs> thing,
1: kind of thing.
0: Yeah. It's kind of a thing, you know. It's just a, yeah. it's a thing. Okay.
1: You find a thing. You're involved in a thing. You're chasing a thing, and they're going to give you a thing.
0: And the thing that eats you.
1: Yes. Anyway, so the group exits. So as the group exits,
0: (laughs) Scanlan remembers the potion that he purchased from Gilmore. He quickly (sighs) downs it and begins to feel a strange rumbling in his stomach. He sneaks back into the ruins and relieves himself in a corner.
2: managing to be gross and creepy all at the same time
1: So let's talk about scatological humor I, I didn't even
0: season get season. three sentences in <laughs>
1: <laughs> go ahead how, how not to win a woman's affection in a
0: <laughs> shit in her yard <laughs> and then watch her through that shit time.
1: <laughs> but no. Okay, so yeah, no, Scanlan's character is one that definitely, you know, there's that any anybody who's involved in the entertainment industry is aware of the concept of lowbrow and highbrow and humor right. of course runs the gamut. And Scanlan manages to entertain himself primarily it seems on the lowbrow end of the spectrum.
0: I mean, there he is a, are... he is a bard. Right.
1: Um, you know, which is, <laughs> which, which if you take, I mean, and, and there's a little bit of inspiration in Dungeons and Dragons drawn from historical, uh, uh tropes. And the Bard, um, is sort of this concept of the traveling jongleur, the entertainer that moves through various levels of society and therefore can, uh, dovetail themselves into almost any situation, Regardless of which level of society they happen to find themselves in, um, so the idea of a bard refusing to engage in lowbrow humor doesn't really make a lot of sense because that's kind of what you need in certain circumstances, or it's going to hmm. ingratiate you to a certain segment
0: it, of the population. It's, it's I have very, some noble elven
2: bards that would disagree with
0: that. It's but. it's it's very Shakespearean. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's like in, Shakespeare, oh, yes, it's wildly Shakespearean. Like, yes. Shakespeare, Shakespeare, the bard, I might right. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. uh Famously, nothing but low humor. Right.
1: <laughs> it's all sword fights and dick jokes.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: So the, the idea of using kind of a, a, a cruder sense of humor doesn't necessarily exclude you from the ability to say you're also creating art at the same time. Perfect example being Shakespeare, as John referenced. Um, However, I would say there's a level of awareness that you need to possess if you're going to be creating on these levels of understanding how your audience and how the public at large will likely perceive you. Um, And if you are wanting to push the envelope, if you're wanting to demonstrate a breadth of artistic capabilities, you're going to want to push your humor into or your your subject material into areas that – Will appear to what we kind of in in the Western uh philosophies consider the higher levels of of uh entertainment and intellect. Um, I'm trying to think of some good examples that would illustrate oh, this. Um,
0: the best, some of the, somebody the best.
1: who's not good at it, at least in my opinion, who has basically. Decided to just stick with the lowest common denominator and make shit that they think is funny and probably doesn't appeal to anybody. <laughs> I know where this 12. is going. Yes, Adam Sandler. <laughs> yep. um, right. Yeah. It's uh, you know.
0: So so the 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 person that you're thinking of, at least from a narrative writing perspective, is probably Mel Brooks, uh, who who is very good at taking lowbrow lowbrow humor and turning yes. it into highbrow humor. It's yes.
1: Yeah, no. Uh, Mel Brooks yeah. would be an excellent example of that. Yeah, you were absolutely right there. Yeah,
0: and also George Carlin. Uh, Carlin who, as well. Yeah, who, Carlin was good at it. Famously, um, like he, like he, he, he took the seven words you can't say on TV, right, and, and turned it into a, art form. Turned it into an intellectual discussion about censorship, mm-hmm. couched in these seven words you can't say on TV. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, yeah, because, I mean, like, yeah, you watch stuff like Blazing Saddles or The Producers or things like that, you know, yeah. And there's some very sort of base level jokes in there that are simply spun and presented in a way that brings a level of elegance that you don't usually associate Mm -hmm. with that topic of humor in the presentation of the humor and it's magnificent
2: yeah no Brooks. the marx brothers were also marx
1: Marx brothers brothers, were also
2: really really good at that
1: yeah Uh because and yeah because the marx brothers i would contrast with somebody like the three stooges right um to where you know the three stooges while they did what they did with an amazing amount of capability it was still Mm -hmm. very you know sort of basic slapstick kind of thing Done very well, but it didn't. It didn't jump to that level of wit per se, or at least not frequently, right. to the extent that the Marx Brothers did.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought the producers because there's one. There's a joke in the producers that I always reference when I'm talking about how you take a lowbrow joke and turn it into a more intellectual joke, and it is towards the end uh, of the of the movie of the the the, the movie um, where. Uh, everything's gone everything's gone right and, and and the show is a success and the the very German Nazi writer is trying to kill the two producers and uh, uh the i can't think of the character name right now Max Max Bialystok convinces yeah. him don't shoot us, shoot the actors they're the ones that did it <laughs> to, which, <laughs> to which to which to which uh, the um the other character responds you can't shoot the actors they're human beings. And the response is, "Have you ever eaten with one?" <laughs> which, yes. which yeah. is, which is a very lowbrow joke, saying that you know, implying that because they eat like animals, they aren't human. Mm-hmm. But at a higher level, it's also referencing how produced in Hollywood and how producers in mm-hmm. Broadway view their actors yes. as cattle to be moved around and satisfied so that they produce content for people to feed on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so like it's, it's a very, very quick and punchy joke that when you look at it a little bit further is very condemning of the, of, of the society in which it is couched. Um, and, and so that, that is, that is a sort of like a, the pristine, perfect example of that kind of intellectual writing using lowbrow humor. Yep. That's not what we get here.
1: Not (laughs) so much. No, we get, we get a gnome shooting in a corner so he can spy on the girl that he wants to
2: date. Yes.
1: Who's, who's, who's had none of it for. And I'll be frank.
2: I am, I I am completely stunned that that is not something he stole from an Adam Sandler movie because it sounds like something <laughs> that an Adam Sandler movie would do.
0: It's oh, slightly too, Adam
1: it's, Sandler is going to do a, you know, fantasy is, adventure film at some point, is, and this will be in it.
0: Coming it soon to slightly, Netflix. It is slightly too creative for Adam Sandler movie because there's a purpose for the shit. <laughs> That's true. The okay. shit is not itself the joke. There's a purpose to it. Yeah. Uh, Ugh. That is that is then the joke. So it's it's too complex a thought process for an Adam Sandler uh, joke. Happy what happened to you?
2: Happened. little Nikki is what happened.
0: Little Nikki is what happened. Um. Anyways. <laughs> uh. So yeah, he sneaks into the ruins, takes a shit in the corner, the shit begins to glow, and he leaves. Yep. Um. I believe he. Ref- Does he refer to it as a poo as a land or someone uh, else
1: Everybody him? just started making shit jokes at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody started, everybody started making fecal puns. Um uh, because, the you know.
2: puns were a flowing. Yep. Much like his bowels. Anyways, um uh, I mean, man. you didn't need to finish the explain the <laughs> joke that ruined it. <laughs> Don't you know comedy?
0: <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> and ruining the joke made you laugh. So
1: <laughs> Anyway, so they leave the yeah, right. uh, he he- currently being renovated temple to Serenm.
0: Yes, he 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 heads back to the group standing outside near a large statue of a bearded man. Um, the statue sits atop a large blocky fortress, and that there and there are two uh, large stone and iron doors that lead to the interior building. Um, and and I, I don't remember why the door was described.
1: Um, they were they were it's it's one of those situations where matt's setting up an establishing shot again mm-hmm. um and here i think from a gaming perspective he does it because he's trying to ground his characters you know they they sort of ended at a one of those points where they don't really have anything hooking them right now this is one of those we've sort of hit an eddy in the river and everything is very stable. We don't have any impending doom. There hasn't been an inciting incident yet. Yeah. And so he's trying to um, – He's
0: giving them a he's visual. Trying to, right.
1: He's giving them a visual of, I know you guys don't have anything that's really yanking at you right now, so let me describe where you are. Yes. Which can sometimes be enough of a hook because if you set up a <laughs> an interesting – establishing shot, curiosity is frequently enough that an audience or a, a group of of players will then decide, okay, yeah, exploring this kind of cool-looking area would probably be pretty neat.
0: And uh, curiosity is indeed what happens as Tiberius takes a minute to look and study the likeness of the statue, recognizing it as the god Chord, patron deity of fighters and strength, uh, as well as strengths and storms. Uh, This section of town appears to reflect the temple, uh, being largely stone and iron. Vax X asks a pair of passersby, and they confirm uh, that the section of town is referred to as the Braving Grounds, dedicated to Cord and to becoming stronger each day. Mm -hmm. They tell them the various traditions within the area, including the Crucible, a fighting arena uh, just outside the Bellows Respite, uh, made specifically for gladiator-style combat. Mm They walk in that direction, seeing a huge crowd gathered. Grog takes off running as Keeleth cries out to him to stop, but he is already well ahead of the group. Grog reaches the edge of the pit, he sees a large woman felling her opponent in the ring, and she, and she climbs out uh to a mass of cheers and hoots. A robed man nearby tells him that the woman is called the siren. He makes note of it, wanting to find her later. I don't does he ever find her later?
1: I don't think he does. I think he's uh, he think he's he, he, he not asks the best about her. Right. He, he, he seeks after her from time to time later as they're in Vasselheim. but I don't think he ever actually makes contact with her.
0: Yeah, I think, I think yeah. Um, Grog asks for a fight. Bookie looks him over and sizes him up. Vex says she'll bet 500 gold on him. He agrees and puts Grog as one of their proven fighters, uh, and he calls up Kern the Hammer, uh, the reigning champion of the Crucible. Uh, they the group tries to give him some advantages, and the people who run the arena very quickly put a stop to that. I don't think Keyleth gets arrested here. I think she gets arrested later.
2: She gets arrested yeah. later. This is not the this is not the uh, try to fix the fight moment.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um. So and
1: yeah. this is and th- that's a frequent you know moving back towards a slightly gamey side rather than narrative side this is a this is an interesting moment for me at least um because unless explicitly described, players frequently assume they'll be able to game the system yep um whereas in most narratives there's a little more grounding in reality, i think um to where you. If if you're you're watching like a Jason Statham movie or something like that. He's just mm-hmm. the one I think of whenever there's, you know, illegal fighting going on. Um, <laughs> I don't Van, Van Dam. Right, yeah. Van Dam as well. You know, there's sort of if if cheating is a thing, it's going to be something that's usually done by the antagonists, not by the protagonists. Uh and it's something that's going to be included in the narrative and sort of be foreshadowed and led up to eventually it's not something that some somebody's going to just do on a whim because well hey we could cheat and try and win this because i guarantee nobody else has been smart enough to think of that yet right uh, you know which is which is frequently what happens in in a, a tabletop rpg at least from my experience
2: um and let's use magic to try and do it in a in in a large <laughs> city. They would not have right. thought of that possibility. Right, yeah, yeah. No. There's
1: no possible way anybody could have considered this as an option. Um, you know, and so it's it's one of those things where if you're writing, that's something that you'll want to consider ahead of time.
0: Because yeah. is is magic prevalent enough that they would have guards against it or people look keeping an eye out on right. it? Right. Or because or if, if
1: magic is one thing is <clears throat> if magic is one of those things that like three people in the world know about then probably not but if magic is something that is prevalent enough that the entire city knows that we sort of don't do arcane magic here but divine magic is fine magic is something that's been considered
2: or and if it is something where it's prevalent and it has been considered that gives you a lot of narrative opportunity. Um, Going back to comics, John Constantine is a perfect example of that, Um, where, you know, he deals with the mystical all the time, and everybody knows that he's going to pull some kind of trick that screws everybody else, and the writers typically view that as a challenge to, okay, how's he going to get out of this one, or how's he going to pull the wool over Um, so if you set that stakes, you can surpass it. Just do it in a way, do it in a way that enhances your protagonist.
0: And for a game master, for, for a game master writing a story, this is one of those things where if you don't want your players to sort of try to game the system and you want them to actually think about what they're doing, there are a couple different ways to do it. One of them, like here, uh, uh, Scanlan tries to sneak a potion to Grog, uh, and gets caught. In a book, he sort of calls him out on it um and you know Grog leaps in by himself and then a fight happens which by the way that's the next section of this of this episode is a fight happening um but uh but you can do it you can you can sort of have the like the real world react and punish them for it in various ways, which happens later on as well uh but you can also do that by sort of establishing. How visible your magic is early mm-hmm. on in the game. Um, I th- I I think I did that pretty early on with you guys when I was describing how magic works in Gran Terra. But um, when it, typically when I when 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 I'm ga- game mastering and people start using magic, I describe what that magic looks like for them so they have an idea of what their of how their magic interacts with the world
1: right there's you know if it's if it's obvious you know yeah you describe the 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 apparent gestures the 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 words that are spoken you know whatever's involved in incanting the the spell to produce this paranormal effect you know mm-hmm. whereas i mean you, but on the other side there's perfectly legitimate reasons to have individuals who can produce these magical effects without it being clearly apparent. And that can be a very interesting uh, turn to take on a system of magic in in a a work of fiction as well.
0: And so you have, you know, if you have your cleric of the light, whenever they try to heal somebody, a divine holy beam drops down, then that's going to be a pretty obvious thing. So how do you hide that? Well, now that cleric's got to get a little bit more creative if they're trying to hide the fact that they're healing somebody. Um, Alternatively, if you have a Trickster cleric, how do they heal when they heal? Uh, is it's probably not going to be the same way that a light cleric does. It's probably going to be more shadowy and secretive and hidden. Uh, maybe easier for them to hide it than a different type of cleric. Hmm. So thinking about how, not only how mechanically does your do your uh, does the ma- does magic work in your universe, how visually does it work, and how does it change visually from different types of spellcasters. Uh, these are all ways that you can think about it when you're writing, when you're GMing, anything, when you're telling a story, how does magic vary from place to place, from person to person? Uh, so, unless anybody has anything else to add to that, I think we can continue. Yep.
1: Keep going. All right,
0: uh, Grog uh, books himself under the name Philip, by the way, and jumps into the ring uh, to fight uh, Kern the Hammer, who is a large, heavily scarred, heavily muscled half orc, um, and they they square off. Uh, Grog, under the name Philip, uh, sort of roars at at Kern, and they run in and fight. Um, it's pretty, and this goes on
1: for quite some
0: time. <laughs> this goes on for quite some time because in D anD D, when you're fighting unarmed, unless you're a monk, it will take a long time. Yeah. Because in in fifth ed, at least, when you fight, you do one damage plus your strength, when you hit somebody. Mm-hmm. And in a game where you can have a hundred plus hit points dealing seven points of damage around, it's going to take a while. It's going to take
1: <laughs> yep. a long while. yeah. What I liked about this is that it's some of the most descriptive combat, I think, that we ever see in this game.
0: Oh, yeah. Matt Matt. Matt takes great care to detail unarmed combat very much, even though it's not necessarily doing a lot of damage. Right. And uh, Travis he...
1: goes into excruciating detail of yeah. every single maneuver that Grog is attempting.
0: You can definitely um, tell that the two of them enjoy martial arts films.
1: Right. <laughs> um, but but for me, that's what made this actually interesting and enjoyable to watch as opposed to more or less just a dice rolling statistical arithmetic slogfest
0: and yeah there there's going back to him because it's relevant that's one of the things that rs Salvatore does very well in his books he describes fight scenes very well um Going into the tiniest and tightest of details, uh, the, the 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 to the point where. You know specifically what he's talking about when he uses a phrase that is not a standard phrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the big one is the double cross double down, cross low. <laughs> double cross low, double cross down. Yeah, as uh, a set of phrases, which is is a thing when you're when you're dual wielding weapons. It's when you it's basically where you lock an opponent's weapon between your two swords and lock them down to the ground. And in the first in the in the prequel series of books, in the books about Drist as a young child it's sort of a thing that he repeatedly went back to where he's like, you know, he's, he's dealing, he's fighting with his father and fighting with these other people that are trainers and learning how to fight and learning how to use two swords. And here's this one thing he keeps coming back to and he can't quite get it. He can't quite get it. And he uses it at, he uses the descriptive nature of his combat writing to further the story of this character and using that thing that he can't quite get the double cross lower, the double cross down as a thing that he, as like sort of a a a plot point in this yep. character's story, um, describe combat does not have to be boring. I've I've heard I've heard people when referencing actual play podcasts or or D and D such in general uh, saying things like, "Who wants to hear a bunch of dice rolling?" Um, which fair enough if that's not something you want to listen to, but it doesn't have to be boring. You can right. paint a beautiful and intricate picture with words as you go. Um and and sort of as you in in this fight, as Matt, you know Physically and verbally describes what's going on using his body, using sound effects uh, and, and very descriptive language detailing this otherwise what is roll d20, do 5 damage, roll d20, do 5 damage roll d20, do 5 damage, d20, do five damage fight yep. um, and it you know, it, it's so good that uh, in addition, it's it's so good that the audience is in entertained and enjoys it, and it's one of the more memorable fights in the early episodes. Um, yeah, and Grog wins, I believe. No, 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 no Grog Kern, does no, no, not Kern, win. Kern wins.
1: Kern wins because half orc endurance is an awesome thing, mechanically yep. speaking.
0: I'm trying
3: to
2: remember how. Kern wins. Uh they were both they both get beaten down severely. I'm like uh, yeah, half work endurance. They were both down to the point of being unconscious. And like Kern had, had both of his knees broken and all this other stuff. And I don't remember what the final blow is.
0: Oh, it was just head, a punch. Headbutt right.
1: to the face. Oh no, yeah. No, it was no, a punch to the jaw. Him. Yeah, rocks him right across the jaw. Yep. Yep.
0: Yep. And and Grog stumbles and falls and leaves Um, beaten and bloody. The group helps Grog back into the tavern next to the crucible. And as he enters Grog gets a standing ovation from all those inside, because like we said, this was a really good fight and Mm -hmm. in really good fights, narratively doesn't matter if you lost, you did a good thing. It was really impressive. Uh, Well, I would say that it does it matters to some
2: people um, it matters it, it matters in by narratively i mean narrative structurally yes it's it's really important that that um in this case and in general you can't have your characters win all the time Yes. Um. If they win all the time, then it becomes what I would, what I and many other people call. I'm not not like I'm coining this phrase, but the Superman problem. Mm-hmm. Um. And I know Superman does lose sometimes, and and so on. That's simply the perception of what Superman is, and that's what part of what makes Superman a problem for so many people is that there's never any like like we were talking about earlier about about. Uh, characters coming back from the dead. There's no stakes if the heroes are just stomping their way through everything all the time and they always win and et cetera, et cetera. One of the reasons that moments when we're talking about whether it's Grog losing here, or whether it's moments like uh, almost every episode on Game of Thrones, whether it's the Red Wedding or whatever, or if it's, um, a lot of the deaths in shows like Buffy or the like. The reason that these moments resonate so strongly with us and become so memorable is not necessarily that they, it's partially that they lost, but it's because it was a moment that, uh, that really proved what the stakes were and that yes, there are in fact things out there that are tougher and 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 uh, 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 more dangerous than our protagonists and more to the point this is what they came back from they, you have to have those setbacks because it's more it's more inspiring and it's more in engrossing uh, 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 to read or watch or whatever these characters as They deal with these difficulties, whether it's, you know, getting your ass kicked in a fight or whether it's, you know, some setback that has a a social stake or a metaphysical stake or whatever the case may be. Those setbacks are what really help define the characters.
0: Yeah, no, I, when, when, just to be clear, when I was saying that it doesn't matter who wins or loses, I'm talking about specifically for a fight crowd. Oh, I know.
2: I was just using that to segue. Uh,
0: because it's, it's important to note that the opposite is also true. Uh, something that WWE gets wrong all the time. Yes. You can't have someone lose all the time, but continue on as if losing doesn't matter. I mean, they do it. They do both. They
2: have have, both problems. They have the Cena-Reigns problem, and then they have the Dolph Ziggler problem.
0: Well, I'm also thinking like the Bray Wyatt issue. Bray Wyatt, well, yeah, Bray Wyatt's
2: the Dolph Ziggler
0: problem. Bray Bray Wyatt, you know, is built up to be this big, bad boogeyman that never wins. You can't really be intimidating if you lose all the time. Right. You, yep. if
1: you have a reputation, you better damn well have earned it.
0: Right? And so, with with your villains, in particular, with villains and story writing, you have to make them a threat. Yeah. They can't I, just roll over. And they don't necessarily have to beat your party into submission to be a threat. They can sometimes just give them a book.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but the idea is, yeah, and there's just- <laughs> a.
1: There are various (laughs) ways that you can raise stakes and invest an audience in a character's uh, ability to overcome obstacles and difficulties. Um, And this one, I feel like, is is fantastic specifically because it's very personalized. Mm -hmm. And personalized stakes are not – the necessarily the best stakes from an objective standpoint um but i find that they're frequently more effective if not not all the time but most of the time they're much more effective than sort of um detached stakes if a party goes if if your protagonists go in and they're (laughs) taking on a goblin army because that goblin army has, you know, been marching across the countryside and has taken out several villages and the the characters see that that as a threat and something that should not be happening and go out to confront them that's one thing. However, if the army is made up of people who have killed say some relatives or friends instead of a bunch of faceless peasants that raises it and gives it a little more of a personal connection or if you want to take it even further if the protagonists themselves have confronted the this army or some of the people that are running this army previously gotten their teeth kicked in and are now coming around to give it a second try that's even more closely yep. tied in to the to the to these individuals that you're supposed to be sympathizing with um, yeah you know so and- so they set up they sort of set this up in this fight it goes through all those phases grog comes in sure he's spoiling for a fight because that's who grog is he likes fighting and they say all right here's our, our undefeated champion so Right then, the stakes are up there because you're fighting somebody who's apparently very effective and has beaten a lot of people previous. You don't know any of these people, but it gives you an idea of the size of the mountain that you're trying to climb. Then Kern goes in there and actually starts hitting Grog, and Grog is starting to feel the pain. So there's another level of connection here, but – you don't really get the full hook of Kern as a character (laughs) until he comes back from what should have been a defeat and knocks Grog completely out, defeats him in front of an entire crowd of a city, and then climbs out of the pit. Now Grog has every single reason to have it in for this guy.
2: Yep. And what's what's great about it with Grog is this is a... uh, This is so personally because this is his strength as a member of the party Mm -hmm. this would be like the equivalent of uh uh, pike coming up against an an evil cleric or um uh
1: or my uh my favorite i've always because i'm a critical role fan, I always think to myself, if I came on as a guest character right. who would I play? And who I want to play is a halfling bard who ran with Dr. Dranzel and was Scanlan's rival the entire time.
0: <laughs> See, I just wanna That's play awesome. a, I I, I just wanna play a <laughs> half dragon, half elf so that the half elves have to deal with the fact that they hate dragons. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: But yeah, this is, yeah, and Grog's, Grog's – this this fight is supposed to be in Grog's wheelhouse, mm-hmm. and, and getting, getting the shit kicked out of you while trying to do something that's in your wheelhouse is far more impactful on a character frequently than getting the shit kicked out of them doing something that, well, I was never really meant to be good at this anyway.
2: Yeah, particularly if it's something that – obviously this is not the only thing you can – he's a great character – and their emotional ties and all that but in terms of like sheer functionality to the plot this is like what grog does you point him at things he goes in and he kills them yeah. um so so to sort of have him get knocked down a little bit in that po- in that aspect it really gives the fire of motivation for the character to come back from that and, and prove them to be that much greater of a hero going forward. Yeah.
0: And uh, it's important. um, We don't address these people too terribly often on this show, but for players in a GM's in a D and D campaign, um, it's important when you're writing your character to have something that affects them. Yes um Go ahead,
2: please yes very much
0: because yeah. we just talked we actually just touched on you know if if this army of people are people that have murdered your friends and family then that makes them more relevant if you didn't have any friends and family to get murdered in the first place there's no way that they could be so there's no it, that makes you have to actually interact with them first then they have to get away in order for you to have that emotional hook attachment thing um when you're writing a story about yourself, it's not that important because you write everybody's character flaws and you know all the secrets that everybody's hiding. But mm-hmm. uh, for players in a D anD D campaign, give yourself some flaws. Mm-hmm.
1: Like emotional if, detachment it, is not synonymous with heroism.
0: Yes, and even emotional, even if you're emotionally detached, give a reason for that. Give something yeah. that. Like what cause, what is the thing that causes you to not become, to, to become emotional? What is the, what is the thing that gets you, whatever yeah. it may be? Um, and, and, and we, we've, we've talked about, I don't know if we've talked about on this. I know I've talked about it on Twitter before that, you know, people, people often say, well, you know, low stats make a good character, high stats don't, or high stats make a good character, low stats don't. It doesn't matter where your stats are. It absolutely doesn't matter what your stats are. You can have flaws regardless. Mm-hmm. I have a character that had that that just happened to roll four 18s, uh when I made him. He has a lot hey, of strength. Those cross
1: those crossroads demon deals, man. They they can carry for a while. I know, <laughs> yeah, I know right?
0: Uh, I like the lowest stat he has is a ten. Yes, but where did I put that ten? His intelligence. Yes. <laughs> He's he's really physically adept. He's really charming. He's really quick and strong and durable. But he's dumb as a bag of rocks and dumped two healing potions on a fire elemental. <laughs>
1: Liquid puts out fire,
0: right? <laughs> that's that's what he was thinking <laughs> in that game. Uh, the best part was the line he said right before it, which was, "I think I know what you're doing, what you're talking yeah, about. I think I know where sure. you're going with this." <laughs> <laughs> and I, and now everyone knows if they hand him a healing potion, say, "Drink this." Yes. And I think, mm-hmm. in
2: addition to just. Give yourself, give yourself, you know, something in backstory that that uh, that you care about. I think talking about this topic. Let yourself lose sometimes. If your character is is about to lose, let it happen.
1: Oh yeah, lean into that. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, not not necessarily. I'm not saying like don't take attack roles if that's what your character would do or something like that, but. If your character in the middle of a fight, you know, a one-on-one duel or something like that, just loses. Don't get back up and say, Oh, I'm fine. It's fine. And don't feel don't feel the reaction to that. Because then there's no stakes in it for not only it's frustrating for the DM because they're like, okay, well, how do I get this character and this person engaged? I don't think they're 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 necessarily enjoying the storyline or whatever the case may be. But it's also got to be frustrating. For, I always feel like it's got to be frustrating for the people that do that because it feels like they just want to say, well, I I I don't want to have lost to that situation, which is understandable. But it's so rewarding it well, really and, is and even then like right. it's, it's
0: ignoring it's, it's ignoring the playground that, game
1: of bang i shot you no, you didn't you missed run away you
3: know
0: right even like, mm-hmm. even even ignoring that you don't have to be perfect all the time no not at all like i i I made a character that's very good in combat. So he's not going to lose in combat all that often. He still is the first one to get knocked out most of the time, but still. um, (laughs) He he puts himself in those situations because it's it's his job. But he's still really good in combat. But outside of combat, you know, sometimes (laughs) he falls out of bed. Why does he fall out of bed? Because it was funny at the time. He drives the rest of the party insane. Yeah. because, (laughs) Because he's like, we're doing this he makes decisions and he follows through on them and he does not necessarily the most optimal decision he jumps up on bridges and runs around edges where he could potentially fall off. Um, But the game is better for it. And like take, take chances and let those real moments happen. Yep. Nobody, 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 gets out of bed every morning bright and chipper and ready to go and if you say you do, you're lying. I do. It takes Not you at least five so minutes. In five <laughs> minutes? It takes, it takes at least five minutes because that's how long it takes me to get out of my bed, stumble to the refrigerator, get a drink, and pour caffeine in me and then I'm okay. <laughs> it takes well, at least fallen five minutes. I have out of bed minutes.
1: in a very long time because my mattress is on the
0: <laughs> but, but, but yeah so like like there are moments of, that can be where you can lose without losing air quotes yes um uh, and and we're actually about to get to one of those because that, that's why i brought it up because uh just really quick sidetrack back into the sidetrack back into the purpose of this podcast mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> um God, we've reached that point yeah i know right uh so they they all go to the tavern. Grog gets free ale. He's also told that there's a brothel on the third floor that he can sleep in for free because he made a fight. And he goes up while everybody else goes to a room. He he does his best to satisfy a woman and fails and collapses in a pool of something. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Grog. And 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 that's funny. In the remains it's, of his masculinity. Yes. It's that's funny. It's also sad and it's also real. Yeah. Yeah. It makes that sort of. I failed. I, I, I failed at something that doesn't matter. That I failed at it makes this character that much more endearing. And yeah, it's, it's things like this that I really think are what make Grog the, the fan favorite character. Is yeah. that he does so often fail at things that it doesn't matter if you fail at. Right, because he, but he takes.
1: But he, he leans into it, and he doesn't avoid it.
0: He leans into being stupid. He leans into making bad decisions. He leans into, what am I at? What, what am I like right now? I've been beaten to within an inch of my life. Well, I imagine I'm not going to function correctly for a while. So. Uh, I just sort of collapse, crying and sobbing, and and then the next morning I'm gonna pretend like it didn't happen. Like these 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 very human, even though he's not a human, these very relatable things. We 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 can't necessarily relate to being a barbarian and raging and slicing things in half with an axe and crushing people's skulls with our bare hands.
2: Sounds like a Tuesday to me.
0: But we can relate to being so tired you can't do anything like and we can
1: pointing the woman you're with sounds like a friday to me
0: <laughs> <laughs> that i wouldn't know about but you know uh, i just i have i have genetics at play
1: uh, <laughs> oh my <God>. <laughs> <laughs> look you're <who's> so fancy <laughs>
2: uh And now we've reached the highbrow,
0: lowbrow portion of it. Exactly. (laughs) You you use it, again, we're using the lowbrow to make a highbrow point. It's a callback. Callback humor! Um, So yeah. The next morning, everyone wanders downstairs, dives into breakfast. Grog, massively hungover, stumbles down as well. Uh, He is given an ale and Tiberius knocks it out of his hand. (laughs)
2: Because Tiberius.
1: About alcohol and begins to blame Grog's defeat the previous night on his drinking habits, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Which is magnificent in the most dickish way possible.
0: Remember, lean into those character faults. Yes. Oh,
1: yeah. Right. I mean, Um, literally, the entire rest of the party is very sympathetic and sensitive to Grog basically realizing that he just got massively shown up at the thing that he's always felt was his greatest strength and Tiberius immediately takes his second greatest strength and tells him that's the reason you failed at your first greatest
2: strength <laughs> I'm telling so... you that Dragonbird missed his calling as a therapist
1: <laughs> I thought you were going to say as a republican but okay <laughs> well,
0: the... So he orders water for him. Oh, Oh, wow. When when you're given a long pause, taking that pause to the point. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So uh, Tiberius orders water for him. So that's
1: midbrow humor.
0: (laughs) Um, uh, What's midbrow humor? Is that where the two are connected? Yeah, unibrow unibrow humor. humor. (laughs) Unibrow humor. I'm glad we got there. All right. Right. Vax, Keep con- it. Keep it rolling. Vax convinces him that this water, uh is a clear form of alcohol that goes down super easy. Uh, <laughs> leaning into that six intelligence. Uh, um, around breakfast, they discuss the next course of action to take. Some suggest following Keyleth uh, to the Fire Tribe. Others make note that they have a large sum of money awaiting for them in Craghammer. Uh, as they debate, Grog fishes a piece of flesh out of his pocket and realizes that it's what remains of the upper lip of Kern from the fight previously. He tucks it away for later use, possibly to make a necklace. Before they can decide on a course of action, something huge slams into a wall on the far side of the city. Um, horns of alarm begin to blare as people rush out of the tavern. Tiberius casts Fly. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's talk about this a little bit. Right?
1: Not, not necessarily a bad character choice, honestly. I have- no.
0: No, it's um, it's it's perfectly good. I, he's 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 in a chaotic situation, and he does the thing that he the first thing that comes to mind.
2: Right. Yes,
1: um, but as I wrote in my notes, Tiberius is now that tourist that it completely ignores local customs for any reason whatsoever. Um, they've already Again. established repeatedly that you know arcane magic is frowned upon. You're not supposed to cast it in public. It is looked down upon you know this is a this is a city that functions with an identity of religious adherence and and religious almost zealotry divine magic is fine arcane magic is something that is considered gauche or insensitive or just plain wrong and Tiberius has just completely ignored that fact
0: oh and, and... <laughs> again in a moment we'll find out that he ignored it, knowing full well he was ignoring it. Oh yes. Ignoring oh, it yeah. on purpose. Um so he casts fly and heads in the direction as Vex, Vex, and Percy jump on the carpet and head towards a pair of bolt throwers atop the wall. One of the bastions tells him that over the last few weeks a Hydra has attacked the wall, seemingly testing it for a weakness. They managed to get a few bolts into it, but not enough to fell it, and it fled back in the forest after putting a crack in the wall next over the wall of the Vesper Timberlands, telling them that it went that way, and as they debate about whether or not to follow it, Grog heads back into the tavern to ask about the siren. He gains a little info on her, uh, other than the fact that she works for the Slayer's Take from time to time. Uh, as they gather near the wall, Tiberius casts Fly on Grog, Trinket, and himself, as the others jump on the carpet and head over the wall into the forest. Tiberius has shot a few dirty looks for casting magic, and the group tells uh, uh, tells them off for tells people looking at them off for doing so, as they head into the deep woods. So at this point, we know Tiberius is fully aware of the fact that what he's doing is frowned upon because they actively frown upon him. And then the group just says, "Fuck off, mind your own business," and then they leave. So I don't. I, who else jumps into this? Because I, I know Tiber. I I, I feel like Vex gets in on it too. I felt like it was. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I I don't
2: recall, <coughs> but my instinct says Vax. Vax
0: or Vex? Vax. Vax. Uh, a couple of, but more than just Tiberius makes comment that says, yes. "Hey, you know, fuck off. Um, we're we're going to go kill a Hydra." Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, they 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 take off as a group after doing the thing. Um, and they track the Hydra through the forest. Um, as they work their way through, they come upon a giant primate that has been torn asunder and partially eaten. Uh, Kiela takes a minute to look it over and realizes that not all the wounds are from the beast who ate it. It appears something else killed the beast first, then left it for the Hydra to eat. The twins head off ahead of the group, making their way out of the clearing and further up the path into the deep woods. Vex manages to spot movement and weighs the group into position uh, around a large pool of water uh, where a scaly creature is drinking. Everyone slides around, getting into a good position to attack from multiple directions. And then once everyone's in position, Keyleth uses a wall of stone to create a ramp for Vex to run up, and he darts forward, stabbing the creature repeatedly. And now, fight has basically begun. Uh, Tiberius hits it with lightning, um, Vex shoots it with arrows, Scanlan shoots it with lightning um, Percy shoots it with his pepper box uh, although, well he tries to shoot it with pepper box and jams curses, then tries to unhook bad news <clears throat> Grog charges forward hits it, with the, hit, hits it with his axe Tiberius, making use of telekinesis again knocks two of the heads together like he's in an old vaudevillian comedy routine Um,
1: We were just talking about the three studios, right?
0: <laughs> yep Yep. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Vex pulls out her huge explosive arrow that Percy made and uh, accidentally sets it off in her own face. (laughs) That was kind of a great (laughs) moment. That was epic. Uh, Trinket goes into it. She sends Trinket to attack. Um, I'm trying to think if. Oh, yes. So, as they're fighting it, another group shows up. Uh, A woman. uh, uh, Sorry, one woman. Cast hold person on Percy as they arrive. Uh, and then a cleric charges forward, uh, along with a tiefling woman with a greatsword, a ranger wielding dual swords, and a heavily armored fighter. They're yelling about rule breaking and their mark, um, and they join into the fight, and Vox Machina continues to fight as well. Uh, as the creature falls, the human fighter steps forward, asking them what they're doing uh he tells them that they have a contract on the beast and they uh basically in screw- that by attacking it Vox Machina basically screwed them out of it. Uh and at this point he identifies himself as Aldor of the Slayers take. Um the the the, the mage of the group tries to calm everyone down but the twins are sort of uh uh fighting back verbally. Um to be uh, fair really quick we would be remiss if we didn't if we
2: didn't point out that Tiberius accident nearly kills Trinket in in killing off the Hydra too.
0: Uh, yes, actually Tiberius does <laughs> killing blow is Tiberius unleashes a pair of fireballs, um, and hits the Hydra and also hits Grog, Vax, and Trinket, knocking Trinket off the stone wall and unconscious. I don't which, know that there which was let's much, just, Yeah, I don't know there was much reaction to that. In game? I'm sure it, Vex reacted.
2: <laughs> there wasn't okay, to be fair, there wasn't much reaction in game because it was an out of game misunderstanding. Yeah. Um yeah. because Not there was to, a question about how 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 big the the hydra was, and it was a twenty foot range fireball, and the hydra takes up twenty feet, but the fireball doesn't land in the middle of it. Well, it, it's a 20-foot radius. Yeah. Right. So, yeah.
1: Not a 20-foot tw- diameter. Hmm? Yeah. Which means it's a lot bigger than a Hydra is.
2: Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, that's sort of why he didn't get that much shit over it, I think. Yeah.
0: Uh, also, since so there was another person here to talk to. That, too. Um... Aldor tells them that the contract they have is magically binding and there's no way to fake it. So they can't, they can't, take, they can't take credit for killing the Hydra because they didn't kill the Hydra, basically. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, uh, sorry, uh, The cleric sets forward an older human and tells them that they can all report to the Slayer's take to resolve the issue. The new group harvests parts of the dead Hydra and the groups head back into town into a section that the Machina have yet to see called the Quadroads, as well as the temple called Erathus' Crown. As they weave through the large outdoor marketplace, they finally arrive at a large wooden lodge. Uh, uh, They enter the structure, and Aldor explains the situation to Martin, the halfling who is in charge of paying out contracts. He tells them they are allowed to take the pledge by the that if they are allowed to take the pledge by the headmaster, his wife, they can avoid issues with the laws of Vasselheim. Basically, you either join the slayers, take, or get thrown in jail because you screwed over our people with contract by behaving (laughs) in a manner ignorant of our local customs and laws. So we actually get to see some punishment for the for uh, (laughs) there are
1: actually consequences.
0: Appropriate hubris. And and so before we finish this up real quick um, this is a thing that doesn't happen very often in fantasy storytelling and probably should happen more often of people getting in trouble for behaving like adventurers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
1: If you're going to be a murder hobo, you're going to get treated like a murder hobo. Yep,
0: I mean, it's one of those things where, like, like there's this sort of expectation of adventurers, and in a lot of fantasy, uh, a lot of fantasy of varying types, adventurers don't ever really get their comeuppance for adventuring unless it's a specific, unless it's like the evil person is making sure they get their comeuppance, right? Like the thing, the thing I think about in particular, um, Marvel superheroes. The only <laughs> time they, the only time they ever get shit for being superheroes is when it's convenient for a villain to give them shit for being superheroes hmm. i e captain america only ever gets treated like shit when hydra's involved traditionally
2: that has been the case i will I, that I mean, that's a separate are, argument to have the, but right
1: there are some of those storylines where that actually is a relevant yeah. key aspect of the plot like the whole yes. civil war thing there are, um, are yeah comic version not
2: <laughs> not, movie not so version. much
1: movie version. I mean, movie movie version, version a little bit. tried, new. but not, not nearly yeah. to the extent that the comics did. Yeah, where it's like, yeah, no, if you've got a whole bunch of people running around without any sort of oversight, just doing what they think is best by their own personal opinions because they happen to be trained and or supernaturally empowered – yeah, that's going to have some fallout,
0: and and mm-hmm. in fact, that that viewpoint is the entire purpose behind Watcht- uh, um Watchmen. Yeah, like, yep. the the Watchmen is what would happen if these people were held resp- were held responsible for the shit they do, like they would be in the real we world. Do an episode on Watchmen, it, it, we have a lot of I things mean, we need to do episodes on.
2: That <laughs> would be, a, it would be a relevant time. Yeah, yeah, there's an HBO series
0: on the way. Uh, but yeah, um, that's that's sort of like that. That's like the whole theme of the Watchmen is mm-hmm. right. You can't just be a superhero and get away with it.
2: Right. Um, <laughs> well, and also what? Anyway,
1: yeah, but but on a on a more sort of basic level, get, even getting away from superheroes, just fiction in general. If you have a society, there is going to be some level of rules, no matter how. Bar, you know, traditionally barbaric or whatever the society is. There's still going to be some things you should do and some things you can't do. And if yep. you do the things you can't do, there's going to be consequences, or there's at least going to be attempts at consequences.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you and and this uh, something along the vein of that, but not quite the exact same thing. If you front up in front of the wrong person. There should be consequences.
1: Oh yeah, you will get smacked the fuck down.
0: And yep. It, and it doesn't happen as often as you'd like because, you know, basically a lot of a lot of it comes down to the fact that player characters won't let themselves have that moment. Um like if if somebody tries to correct somebody on a point of respect or whatever, then right, oh, roll initiative the everybody jumps to everybody jumps into the fight. Um, starting a fight that didn't necessarily need to be a fight, right. but
1: and then the G, then the GM is put in the uncomfortable position of okay, do I do what's logical here, which is call in the guard and literally murder all of these people who have or, picked to fight or for a no reason, all of them. But,
3: yeah. yeah,
1: or you know arrest or whatever you know, or do I sort of smack them around a little bit, but kind of tacitly legitimize their opinion by letting them win, you know, and it's a it's a very It's a very interesting sort of dynamic that frequently happens because there's so much of a disconnect or a separation sometimes between Mm -hmm. the character and the player.
0: Yep. Uh, And so – Which is why I like
1: things like insight rolls before the fight starts to basically say, you know, okay, yeah, no, this is something you can do, but they will kill you. So – that puts the ball back in the player's court to say, all right, the GM has said, yes, you can take this fight. The GM has also said, guess what? You will lose this fight and not in a, you know, overnight in the the drunk tank, but more in a head on the block kind of way. Right?
0: Yep. Of course, there's also, you know, people that And if that's take... what the
1: players want to do, then that's what the
0: players want to do. Uh, and and then there are also people that take that warning and ignore it completely, right? Uh, because they are really super confident in themselves, and consequences sometimes follow. Um, anyways, uh, so yeah, they're, they're basically you know they're facing the consequences of jumping into Vasselheim's uh, problems without knowing Vasselheim's rules. Yep, uh, which is particularly nice. For For me, in particular, for like Tiberius, because this is this is this is the comeuppance that Tiberius, as a character, has needed yeah the, oh, the yeah because he hasn't really gotten it anywhere else. This is the first time that we really see no if you behave this way, there are consequences that you cannot escape
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, and and just sort of empathically know you can't escape it because the first thing they did upon arriving in combat previously was cast hold person on percy like the 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 very first thing this other group of adventurers did was prove that they are a match for this group of adventurers for vox machina Mm -hmm. Um, so there's this sort of unspoken term of we can't take all of them in a fight
1: and then you find out that the people that you were thinking of possibly taking in a fight are the are part of a much larger and very legitimized organization. Yep. Yeah, and you're starting to realize, oh yeah, no, we are we are not a g- gang of plucky superheroes amidst a bunch of wussy peasants. There are people right. here who can step up to us and definitely take us <laughs> on our own terms. Yep. And we are in their territory.
0: We have become the NPCs to their adventuring party. <laughs> right. Uh so, uh, uh the headmaster talk uh, sorry, uh, Martin talks to his wife, um, and she says she says to, to bring them in. Uh he ushers them down the hall into a large office, and leaning against the desk in the room is a tiefling woman. Headvasser Vanessa Sindrell. Uh, She tells them that they are going to be placed on a trial basis with the take, and should they complete a single contract, they'll be given full membership. They agree to the trial contract to avoid going to trial and possibly jail. As part of the trial, she divides them into two groups and adds a pair of would-be members to each team. Team 1 consists of two new female adventurers, played by next week's guests, Um, the the guests that we're going to have next week, uh, Mary McGlynn and Felicia Day. Um, The
2: guests, to be clear, the guests that...
0: Critical Role
2: is going to have next yeah, week. Yeah. Not the, the guests role, we're not, going to have next not, week. Not, not we, <laughs> Critical Role,
0: the Royal We.
1: We should see if we can make that happen.
0: I, see, we're going to have Felicia Day and Mary McLean on next week in Critical Thinking. And, uh, no, to I,
1: talk about their first guest episode. I, I don't I feel know like that would I, be I appropriate. have.
0: Brit? It would be, but I don't know that I can do that.
1: I'll see what I can do.
0: I'll let, I'll let you, uh, you're closer to Burbank than I am. I'll let you go down there and uh, and talk to them in person and see what they think. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, Mary Elizabeth McGlynn has a semi-Irish last name, so we've got at least an ethnic connection there, and Felicia Day has the same color hair I have, so I really don't see what the problem's going to be.
0: No, no, I think it'll be fine. All right, so Jack
2: has just committed (laughs) and (laughs) (laughs) promised on his soul to you, the listeners.
0: Hey, hey, if Jack pulls this off, he's the new PR guy for Final J. So, yeah, I'll
1: give it my best shot.
0: Like, that's his new job.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is not gonna go
0: well. Yes, God! <laughs> uh, yeah. Um. <clears throat> uh. Sorry. That team in uh, with Mary McGlynn and Felice Day includes Vex, Grog, Scalen, and Percy, and then uh, Team Two includes uh, Vex, Tiberius, Keyleth, and two prospective male characters who will be played by Will Wheat, Will Friedel and Will Wheaton. Um. Uh, she laughs at the twins' attempts to get her to change her mind, and then waves her out of the room. The trial begins in the morning, and they have three days to complete it. And that's the end of the episode. Yep. Uh, so we actually we we, we had a lot of good stuff to buy. Is there anything that, that that towards the end here that you guys w- wanted to bring up that we didn't touch on? Uh, uh no, not really. Not personally, really, does it
1: come up now. I don't think so. Um, I mean, Slayer's take is a great sort of. <laughs> Organization that's brought in because it's fairly—it's unique in that it's fairly detached in its purpose. Mm -hmm. There's nothing. A lot of times when an organization or an entity is brought into a story, it's because it is either specifically an ally or specifically an antagonist to the protagonists of the to the main characters of the story. Slayer's take is unique in that it's literally just an entity that they now have to associate themselves with or face consequences in another way but it's not antagonistic to them but nor is it clearly aligned in its purpose to the same sort of path that the uh the main characters of this narrative are trying to take and i like things like that because it's it it gives the world a feeling that there's more going on than just these protagonists. We're following this story because this is what we've locked into. This is what we're hooked on for. This is the ride that we're riding, but there's a lot more going on here than just these guys, which gives a depth I feel to a setting uh, that can, that can be lacking. If everything that happens is somehow intimately connected to just this one thread of narrative that we're following through this yeah. world.
0: Yep.
2: I mean this this episode is what we when when I review stuff on for like like TV shows this is what what you would traditionally call a table setting episode. Um this is there's not a lot of huge like we've just finished the first chapter, right? Of of this, or the first season, quote unquote, um, basically up until the previous episode, Enter Vasselheim, is what is commonly referred to as the first season of Critical Role. Um, now that we're moving on to the next arc, there has to be a lot of of setting things up and and moving pieces around and introducing new elements in order to start to build the plot for the next season. Um, for 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 the episodes to come, there's a lot of that that goes on in here, and a lot of times, and I think that's the case here. And I'm not saying this in a in a critical way, but a lot of times, the the, the table setting episodes tend to be passed over a lot, and tend to be not really. They're not the most memorable, ones. like the outside of the fight with 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 uh, Kern. There's not a lot in this episode that you're going to have ever going to hear people say, oh, that was my favorite moment. Or I remember that moment so well. Not that anything in here is bad, but it's done in the service of setting up something greater. Um, that's what pretty much all of this episode, including the fight with Gern, is. Um, but it does it very well. Mm hmm. Yeah,
1: because and, and the point of a table set episode is is not meant to be the most memorable. Because no. what it's supposed to do is prepare the way for the yes. most memorable. Exactly. And and if your table setting episode is more memorable than the eventual payoff of that table set episode, you kind of fucked it up there.
0: <laughs> True. Yep. And so next week there uh, there is there's something that I want to talk about but I'm not gonna, I'm not going to put it at the end of here because this has already been a long enough episode as it is. Um but uh next week I do I'm going to touch on the subject of guilds in uh in a fantasy setting and in writing and sort of the purpose that they serve. because mm. uh, this is something that I have put a lot of thought into recently as the two of you well know. Uh,
2: Gee, why could that um, be?
0: Because yeah. It's relevant. Anyways, uh so yeah. This has been Critical Thinking episode sixteen. Thank you all very much for listening. Uh we've been Final Show Films, and I've been once again John Bates at John A Bates on Twitter, and Jack has been here.
2: Yep, at alt F4Gamers on Twitter.
0: And Jeremy. J Thomas 411 Mania on Twitter. And we appreciate all of you guys. We also, uh, uh, you can find more of our content at FoundershipFilms.com. You can also support us financially on our website. Sorry, you can support us. You can find more of our content on our website, FoundershipFilms.com. I've completely lost the spiel. Um, <laughs> you can support us financially on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash films. Quick shout out to all of our patrons, uh, especially our current dollars tier supporters, Chris Cover and Tonic, because, uh, at the end of the month with this next Patreon payment, we will be able to afford a new for our uh, for our uh, Sunday Sweet. crew sound hey, stage yeah. that we're putting together um, pretty soon in the next month or so, I want to say we're going to have a sound stage set up for our Sunday crew. So uh, and for other projects, so you'll actually we'll actually have like a table with people sitting around it and rolling actual dice on camera on live streams. So nice. I look forward to that. And if I can ever fly people in from from the West Coast to the East Coast, we might have some of them on that camera, too. Um, but we'll see. But anyways, awesome, uh, we're, we're setting that up. That is the process. Look forward to that. Um, thank you guys for helping make it happen. Uh, also, thank you to the folks over at 411mania.com. Jeremy, tell us a little bit about 411mania.com.
2: Uh, for allmania.com is a pop culture site that caters to pretty much everything that the, the geeks could be interested in. Whether you're looking for movies, uh, latest film reviews, uh, latest TV show reviews, the um, latest news—talking uh, about there's a Watchmen TV series coming, or uh, all the latest around what's being done with the weird, wacky Sony side of the Spider-Man franchise. Um, or if you you know if you're interested in music, we've got we've got news on that, uh, news and opinion stuff on that, wrestling, MMA, uh, video games, all the stuff that came out of E3, uh, and comic books and the stuff that Final Show Films does. Four so One One maniacom dot com. Check us
0: out. Yeah, we appreciate them. And we appreciate all of you listening, and we'll see you all next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.